Welcome back to another episode of Minds of Medicine, a medical education podcast that delivers the stories of healthcare leaders and physicians, as well as perspectives into the ever-changing field of medicine. As always, I'm your host, Sonny, and today's guest is Dr. Adam Milam, a cardiac anesthesiologist and internationally known healthcare disparities researcher with dual appointments at Hopkins School of Public Health and the Mayo Clinic. We talk about his journey to pursuing his PhD, his MD, selecting a residency, and what it was like to be an anesthesia resident during peak COVID. I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. Enjoy, and we hope you learned something. But first, run the intro. episode and I kind of just want to dive right in and start with what led you to medicine in the first place yeah that's a great question so I grew up in Baltimore and there's a lot of public health issues and so growing up uh, in undergrad I started working at a nursing home as an a tech and then started working at the hospital at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the emergency department saw all the health issues that people encounter and the difficulty accessing care and so that really led me to medicine. I was originally thinking engineering when I was in undergrad, but just working at the hospital, that exposure, working with the nurses, emergency medicine physicians, honestly led me to uh, go to medical school, thought I was going to do emergency medicine, obviously did not end up doing that, but that was my first exposure uh, as a tech in the emergency department. So then you were a tech and then you decided to kind of pursue the path of medicine. Um, what was the application cycle like for you and how did you end up choosing uh, put medical school in that entire process for you? It was honestly uh, a long process. I'm not the traditional medical student. And so when I first started, I, like I said, I started with an engineering degree. I did that for four semesters. I actually hated engineering. I was chemical and bi- biomolecular engineering. Ended up switching to public health. And so I applied during the traditional process the summer of junior, after junior year, was accepted, but I actually applied for a master's in public health as well, was accepted to that and decided to go uh, and pursue my public health degree. So I deferred my admission to medical school for a year to complete that master's degree program. About halfway through the master's degree program, my advisor suggested for me to apply for a PhD program which wasn't on the radar at all. I mean, it was no reason for me to do a PhD, but I listened to my advisors and I applied for the PhD program only at Johns Hopkins was accepted. Um, but you know, I was still planning to go into medical school, so wasn't considering that too much, but then they offered me uh, some money for the PhD program. So they put me on an NIH training grant, which will cover tuition, give you a monthly stipend, pay for travel, and it was pretty hard to turn up, you know, Hopkins is the number one school of public health in the country. You have an NIH training grant. And so I withdrew my acceptance to medical school and actually pursued my PhD program and then reapplied to medical school. I think it was about a year and a half into my PhD program, was accepted to Wayne State, deferred for a year to finish my PhD. So I defended my PhD March of 2012, graduated May of 2012, and then started medical school uh, August of 2012. 
Wow, I love that because you had this admission and you took a huge bet on yourself uh, mm -hmm. that when you could get it back, but also that, you know, this was going to be your path and this was going to be a journey. And shout out to that advisor. I mean, I think <laughs> that is uh, to have yeah. tr built that relationship, built that trust. That's absolutely incredible. Um, and then so let's say you were in medical school. How did you end up choosing what you want to do and how did that end up leading to cardiac anesthesiology? Sure. So as I originally mentioned, I was really planning on doing emergency medicine. Um, and so I was part of the emergency medicine interest group, uh, blah, blah, blah. But third year, I really fell in love with surgery. So I thought I was going to be a surgeon. So I did an extra month of uh, surgery rotation, in addition to the two months, did in a way uh, during my third year as one of the blocks. Really loved uh, surgery, loved being in the OR, working with my hands, uh, managing patients in the unit as well. And so I really thought I was going to do surgery, but uh, <laughs> then got exposure to anesthesia in my fourth, fourth year and thought that was a better fit for me with the personality, just the flexibility of the specialty. And it overlapped a lot with the, some of the research I was doing. And so my public health degree was in the Department of Mental Health, focused a lot on substance use. Uh, specifically in adolescent populations. And so I saw easy crossover with anesthesiology, especially with the opioid epidemic, um, chronic pain patients, et cetera, et cetera. And so decided on anesthesia, applied and happy with my, my choice. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, anesthesia is really technical. You're still really hands-on um, and you're still a vital part of that OR. I think I was reading some stat about how schools with an anesthesia rotation or exposure to anesthesia have a much higher rate of students that pursue that. Uh, I'm lucky that we have about a week, but you know, it's still something that, that during that week, you really get a lot of exposure to it. Um, I actually loved cardiac anesthesiology. <laughs> yeah. No, I wish we had more exposure to anesthesiology during, during third year. I mean, most people don't get any meaningful exposure until fourth year, which is often a little bit too late. Uh, but I know a lot of the surgery programs are integrating anesthesia at least for a week or a couple of days into their the surgical block, which I think is helpful. But hopefully there's more exposure uh, in the future during third year so people can make an informed decision about specialties that they pursue. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's hard. It, you know, it's sometimes difficult when I'm sitting here to be like, what am I going to want in... 30 years from now or 20 years from now. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so really trying to be introspective. And it's good that you had that during that entire process. Did you have any mentorship, any guidance, um, any more advisors that really played a role in, in helping you figure it out? Definitely. Uh, mentors have been essential for me in my decision making. And we talked about the PhD program, but my mentor, I first met in undergrad. I was a junior and she's been my primary mentor since then, so since 2007. So, you know, quite a long time. Yeah, and I've definitely picked up additional mentors along the way because that mentor is a PhD, public health, but helped, you know, make decisions, helped me make decisions as far as fellowship when I got my first job, just about career advice in, in general, but also have mentors within anesthesiology and then ones outside of the specialty as well. So one of my main mentors now is a cardiologist. I have one that's a family medicine physician. Of course, I have a couple that are anesthesiologists, but I think it's good to have diversity and specialties, diversity and levels of experience when you're thinking about mentors, but they've definitely helped me guide 
uh, my decision making when I did my rank list for fellowship, when I was applying for for jobs and trying to figure out which job to take, they were essential in that decision making process. That's incredible. And I love that you mentioned, you know, having uh, different specialties as your advisor, because that is also my perspective. You know, I don't want I'm going to be pursuing IR and I don't want only IR advisors, I think it's really beneficial to get a holistic mentality to kind of what you're going to pursue. Uh, so that's fantastic. And you mentioned this. So you went from, you know, an anesthesia residency. How did you decide on cardiac? So uh, during my second year of residency, got exposure to different specialties within anesthesiology. So we do uh, rotation on peds, anesthesia, chronic pain, cardiac, um, and then, you know, multi-specialty. For me, cardiac, it was just the excitement in the OR. It brought to life everything about anesthesiology, but kind of like on steroids. Um, so my first cardiac case was actually a lung transplant, and we did it without cardiopulmonary bypass. It was a challenging case. Thoracic surgeon basically said at the beginning of the case, this is almost going to be like a mini code during the entire case. And it was. It was a six-hour code. Um, so it was a difficult case, but it was exciting, and you had to bring to life all the concepts related to anesthesiology within pathophys, physiology, knowing all those drugs. And so that excitement really led me to, to cardiac surgery. That that one case was like, this is what I want to do. Um, and the consideration was whether I just do cardiac or do a combined cardiac ICU uh, fellowship. Given I do a lot of research, I didn't think I could split my time with in the unit as well. And so just stuck to, to cardiac. Yeah. And so I kind of want to fast forward a little. You finished your cardiac uh, fellowship and then you got your first job. I'm not exactly sure what that was, but now you're currently have two appointments. Uh, could you elaborate on what that means and um, what your day to day kind of looks like? Sure. So this is my first job. I'm at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Uh, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist, so I'm in the cardiac and thoracic division uh, for the department but also have an appointment at uh, Arizona State University within their population health program. I have a joint appointment within epidemiology at Mayo Clinic, and then I still maintain my faculty appointment at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Department of Mental Health, where I finished my PhD program. So those appointments just allow me to collaborate with others as far as research, but also get to work with students uh, at Arizona State University, students who are interested in medicine, students that are you know focused on public health and collaborate with them uh, on on research. And then my clinic, thank you, clinical practice. I'm about sixty percent, sixty five percent clinical practice at this time. Um, like I said, I'm 100% on the cardiac team, but also do general anesthesia cases. My other headset, Mayo, 20% um, research, and then 15% uh, uh, leadership position, which is the medical director for the Office of Health Equity and Inclusion, focused on getting more diverse patients into Mayo Clinic and making sure that we aren't contributing to health disparities. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. And it's great to hear that you're you know, now in a position to give back that mentorship that you know, was so pivotal for you uh, along your journey. And so it sounds like you wear so many hats. You know, I've learned that balance isn't the right word, but how do you kind of ha have all this on your plate? And, you know, what do you know, or how do you know what to give energy to and what not to? Sure. I think that's the importance of your mentor, again, helping decide what's going to uh, help you with your career goals, 
and also address your passions, but avoid burning yourself out. And so it is a lot to, to juggle. And yeah, balance is probably not the right word uh, because there is no balance. But I think just those organizational skills that you learn in medical school, trying to juggle your study schedule is the same thing that helps me out to this day. And also just a good support system and a team. So I have an administrative assistant uh, within my department. I have a lot of support uh, for the OHI role and a lot of people on the research team that are working with me. Yeah, it's so important to build out a team that you can kind of trust um, because when you're not there, you know, you need to know that everything's running smoothly. Um, so that's really, really important. I kind of want to keep going. And I think it'd be important that you mention that you were an anesthesiologist during peak COVID. Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, th that's that's a, a good question. So I was in residency in 2020 at the height of the pandemic. And I was in Los Angeles, so we had an early wave and um, actually had COVID March of 2020, right before it was uh, deemed a pandemic. Um, and we didn't have testing for it because I hadn't been out of the country, but I had all the symptoms and then later tested positive for antibodies. But it was a lot of work. We were kind of repurposed as anesthesiology residents. Uh, because we didn't have any elective cases. So we were all moved to the ICU and tried to help out in other places in the hospital. But it was taxing, right? Because you're seeing people die at higher numbers in the ICU on the floor. Um, so it was it was very challenging as a resident. Um, learned a lot of skills, got to interact a lot more with patients, which was helpful, but it was definitely a, a pretty dark time. We actually did a, a focus groups with some of the ICU teams looking at what factors and what things kept them motivated during that time. And it was a lot around teamwork um, and then just the hospital supporting those teams. So we did learn a lot about uh, how to work together across departments and reassign folks to different areas, uh, but it was a very challenging uh, time. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you're so, you're so involved with so many different things. Does that help play a role and in, in you keep going? It definitely does. Um, working with students, honestly, keeps me going. Uh, just to see the, the progress of our, my medical students, residents, and then the people that I work with on research, the skills that they obtain along the way definitely keeps me going. You know, they become excited about the work and that gives you some excitement especially uh, as far as research. But then, you know, when I get a resident, their first day in cardiac and their eyes are wide because of so much that's happening in the cardiac OR, you know, that definitely excites me and, and keeps me going. It keeps me motivated. You know, I think it's really important to mention that you are one of the few black male physicians, um, especially when you look at proportion to the United States. What advice do you have for pre-meds and current medical students um, when it comes to continuing their journey? And what perspective have you been able to develop from, from your journey so far? I think it's pretty challenging for racial and ethnic minorities to pursue a career in medicine. The same thing with gender, right? We have an underrepresentation of females within medicine. It's gotten better. So I think in 2019, we now have more females enrolled in medical school than males which is good, but we don't have the females in leadership positions. The same thing with racial and ethnic minorities. 
we have not made significant strides in increasing the number of underrepresented minorities in medicine, and we definitely don't have them in leadership positions. But I think it's essential to have, you know, role models that you can look up to and that can help you guide, help guide you through the process. And so again, the importance of mentorship and sponsorship. And uh, without my mentors and sponsors, I would not have made it to where I am now. And so I'm trying to do the same thing and pay it forward to you know, mentor medical students, mentor graduate students, residents, fellows, et cetera, to make sure that they successfully get through this process. Um, but I think we have a lot of work to do within medicine um, and sciences in general to make sure that we have pathway programs for those underrepresented in science and medicine um, and other segments of the population that don't have access. Yeah, and just going back, like my perspective has always been supporting education from the ground up. Because when you, you know, a lot of these um, pathways, you kind of have to get exposure to or good enough grades early on. I look back to my high school experience. I didn't know I was supposed to study for the SAT. (laughs) I have an older brother, but, and he told me to, but I didn't, I didn't know that was actually a thing, you know? So I just showed up day one and and took it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think so much about it is, is really building uh, powerful educational systems across across the country and investing in those communities. Um, I love what you said. I think that's great advice. And I hope that, you know, some medical students that hear this, you know, can keep you in, uh, keep you in their mind. Uh, I kind of want to open up the floor and to see if there's anything else you want to share with our audience um, about your journey or about yourself. No, I I just want to highlight the importance of physician sciences. So it's good that we get more, uh, minorities, more females in medicine in general, but I think it's also important to have them as physician scientists who are making the decisions, finding new treatments, um, and advancing the field. We definitely need out-of-the-box ideas to address some of the medical conditions that we, we see, to address some of the healthcare disparities that are present. Um, and so I would just encourage people to engage in research and you know, find mentors and find other physicians that can help you with that. But research will help out a lot with the healthcare disparities that we currently see. Yeah, well, I'm, I've had a blast. Thank you so much for for jumping on the podcast. Um, I'm excited to kind of keep following along on, on your journey. Thank you so much. enjoy that episode. If you did, let us know. We always appreciate all the shares on social media, so keep those coming. Until next time.